Get your Bibles ready. We're going to dig in tonight. You know, a lot of times through the past years when we've, on Wednesday nights, we've really done deep dives into uh, certain books of the Bible. And I, I believe moving ahead, we'll have the opportunity to do that in a little bit of a different forum, whether it's discipleship classes or a little mini Bible training school, whatever. But uh, tonight, I, I want to do a deep dive, not into a giant section, but uh, I want us to focus on, on that radical, transformational meeting that the shepherds had with the angels. And I want to focus on what the angels said because I, the angels were the first to preach the gospel, but after this, they didn't preach the gospel again, if you've noticed. Uh, after this, and even, even with the shepherds, the angels told the shepherds the good news, and then they entrusted the shepherds to go tell other people. Because God did not create angels to be the carriers of the gospel. He created us to be the carriers of the gospel. And so if we're sitting around waiting for God to spread the good news on his own, he's already done the good work here. He's left it to us. Even uh, if, you'll, if you'll remember the story of Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion, who was a generous man. I don't know that that's that funny, but all right. <laughs> if you recall uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who had given a lot to the, to the Jewish people, built temples, you know, he, or given money to synagogues. He'd done a lot. Uh, and the Bible says that his alms, his giving, rose up as a monument to God. And then it says something. It says that, that the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that somebody was going to come to his house, that he needed to go, actually, he needed to go get this person, send someone to go get Peter, and bring Peter to your house, and he's going to preach the gospel to you. That angel could have easily preached the gospel at Cornelius' house, but he didn't. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to tell you, you go get this guy, and he's going to come preach the gospel to you. But that's not the only time in the New Testament that happened. In fact, you know, you'll, you'll see it when, when the apostle Paul uh, was Saul of Tarsus, knocked down on the ground and struck blind by the light. Even then, even Jesus didn't lead him to salvation. Jesus told him to go to a believer's house. And you'll see many examples of this throughout the scripture that, that God insists on using people to lead other people to the Lord. So this message, I want to pay attention to what the angels said because what the angels said, they were entrusting to the shepherds and they're really entrusting to all of us. This was the first announcement of the good news after Jesus' birth. And here's what it says. If we'll turn to Luke chapter 2. I mean, many of you, these words instantly sound familiar. Maybe you've read them so many times you haven't really spent a lot of time focusing on what they say because you're so familiar. I mean, once you hear Charlie Brown tell this story, it wasn't Charlie Brown, it's one of the Charlie Brown, one of the Peanuts characters. Was it Linus? It was Linus. Once you hear Linus tell this story and you think, you know, who else could do it justice? But <laughs> let's read what it says. He says... Let's start with what happened in verse 8, Luke 2, 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, pay attention to this. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now let's go back to what he says. I'm bringing you good news. And this good news will bring great joy. And this good news of great joy is for everybody. There's not a nation. There's not a people group. There's not a class. There's not a gender that is excluded from this good news. Everyone's included in this good news. It's for everybody. It will be good news and it will bring great joy to everyone who will receive it. 
Now you hear that and you go, well, that's awesome. Uh, that's what the gospel is. If we could define the gospel, because the gospel literally means good news. It always is the good news that brings great joy, which will be for all people. It's, it's for everyone. One of the coolest things, if, if you ever want to do a study of different cultural worldviews and and uh, there's been some great uh, think tanks that have, have put together studies of, of how different cultures, what they value, what they put the emphasis on. Here in our Western society, we, we really value, uh, we're, we're, we kind of have a justice worldview. We, we, we see that there's somebody in the right and somebody in the wrong. That's the way we like it to look at the world. We see that there's guilt, a guilty party and there's a wronged party. And so when our kids get in trouble, what do we ask? Who started it? You know, there's, these are the questions we ask. Well, the gospel, even though the gospel is not just for us and it certainly wasn't presented first to us, uh, the gospel answers those questions. It answers the questions of guilt. It answers those questions of shame. It answers the question of we were wrong, we were guilty, and yet uh, that, that punishment was borne by Jesus Christ, and now we stand innocent, not guilty by the blood of Jesus. But in other parts of the world, that's not really the question they're asking. The question they're asking is not really who's right and who's wrong. The question they're asking in some parts of the world is who's powerful. Right? Which God, is the river God powerful here? Is the mountain God powerful here? Which God can overcome all the other gods? Who's got the power? And when you preach the gospel, you understand the gospel covers that too. It talks about Jesus coming and, and disarming all the rulers and authorities. Every other power was disarmed after the, the cross and through the res resurrection. They were, he made a show of them openly that he is the overcoming Savior. You go to other parts of the world and it is an honor-shame culture, right? Especially in certain parts of, let's say, eastern parts of the world. There's an honor and a shame culture. And, of course, the gospel deals with that. Deals with the, the shame that, that we brought on ourselves. And the honor that, that Jesus was bestowed, that was bestowed on him through the Father. And that he bestowed on you through his name. That he redeemed the family. He took the shame. We shamed the family. He redeemed the family. So the gospel has answers to every culture. The gospel speaks to every culture because all of us come from the same stock that God created us somewhere in our DNA is, is hidden and encoded a desire and a need for a savior, is hidden and encoded the, the knowledge that the story, the, the story of the cross and the resurrection is not just a story. There is in us a longing for eternity. So when he says it's good news for everybody, for all peoples, he's saying like, guys, this isn't just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the people in the immediate area. It's not just for you. It's going to be for everyone. And it'll bring great joy when it's preached. But of course, you know that if you've read the Bible, you know that it didn't always bring great joy, did it? In fact, sometimes it brought great anger. What kind of message is it? Is it a joyful message or is it an angry message? It's like, what is it? You know, Paul, Paul said this quite uh, simply and plainly. He said, you know, the message of the cross that we preach to us, to the world, it's foolishness. To those that are being saved, it's the power of God. He said in another place that, that we carry with us the fragrance of Christ. But to those that are perishing, we smell like death. That's quite a, <laughs> that's a switch, isn't it? That's more than just somebody like cilantro and to someone else it tastes like soap. Like this is, we smell like Christ and to some we smell like death. Well, why? Because the worst thing for a dying man, you might think the worst thing for a dying man is the fact that he's dying. That's bad. But even worse than just dying is dying and not knowing you're dying. Even worse than that is dying, not knowing you're dying, and there's a cure, but you don't think you need the cure because you don't know you're dying. Isn't that the worst you're dying, and there's a cure, but you don't know you're dying, so you don't think you need the cure. That's tragic, isn't it? So maybe the fact that Paul said we smell like death to people that are dying, what he's saying is we're the wake-up call. That you're not doing as well as you think you are, but there's an answer. You're dying, but I offer you life. What would you rather have? The, just the bliss of not knowing? Would you rather know and have something you could do about it? But I want to skip ahead a little bit to something that was prophesied over Jesus as he was a baby in the temple. 
Simeon prophesied over him as he held the baby in his arms. But then he turned to Mary and Joseph and he said something that shocked them. There's an old man who's been waiting for the Messiah all his life. And he finally gets to see him and he says, I can go in peace. I can die in peace. I've seen salvation. I've seen the promise. But then he turns and he says something that we don't quote as often, but we should. In Luke 2, verse 33, it says, And his father and mother, this is Mary and Joseph, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, like this is something you need to know. This child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. You see, he's just finished telling them that this baby is wonderful. He's just finished telling them this baby is amazing, that this baby is going to save the world. And then he says, people are going to hate this baby. I don't know if, if, if many, I don't know how many of you are parents, but think about being a mother in that situation and having someone say, this child's going to cause trouble. This child's going to be the fall of many, but the rise of many. This, sign, this child is going to be a sign to be opposed. Because all she's been hearing so far is the Messiah. You know, the shepherds came, they were happy. Simeon came, he was happy. All she's heard is he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. You know, this is good news, even though it's a bit troubling for her because she, she got pregnant out of wedlock and she had, to, she had to bear the shame of that and the uncertainty of how Joseph would take it. But past that, once the baby's been born, she's been hearing praise and glory and now she hears the other side of the sword, which is that this child is not going to be universally accepted. He is born king of the Jews, but his own people won't recognize him. He is the Messiah we've been waiting for, but the very people who study the Messiah will reject him. And he will cause many to fall and many to rise. And in verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. A sword will even pierce your own soul. There's, there's decisions that are going to have to be made. Jesus, this child is not going to leave anybody on neutral territory. No one's going to meet him and be able to say, I feel the same way I did yesterday. Nobody's going to meet him and say, I haven't changed my mind. You're either going to have to dig in and go the opposite direction or you're going to run to God. But Jesus never left anybody in a place where they didn't have to decide. What do I think about him? And as we preach the gospel, this is really the question that, that it always comes back to and it always should come back to. I've preached the gospel in places where Christians have done a bad job of presenting the gospel. They've borne his name poorly. They've, they've searched for power in the name of God. They've dominated and oppressed or maybe even with good intentions, they were like a bull in a china shop and, and really messed things up. And people say, why would I follow a religion that does things like that? And you have to say, no one asked you to follow a religion. I asked you, what do you say about Jesus? Because even though people came in his name and did some stupid things, I'll tell you one who's perfect. It's him. I'll tell you one who's never been a hypocrite. It's him. I'll tell you one who's always, always been good. It's him. I'll tell you the only perfect person that's ever walked the planet. It's him. So the question is not what, what do you think about me or what do you think about the church at large or what do you think about this scandal or what do you think about this politician? The question is what do you think about Jesus? Because ultimately, he's the only one I'm talking about as our Savior. He's the one that you're going to have to decide, is he going to be my fall or my rise? You think about the up-and-comers, the hot shots, who finally got their place in Israel. Jesus said when they would go to the market, people would tip their hat, people would call them father, people would give them things for no reason. They had respect in their whole community. They had honor. The kids would treat them like they were celebrities. They were respected and honored, and then Jesus comes along. 
And the Bible says that many rulers of the synagogue, and the synagogue is their main worship place. It's the place where they're taught. It's the place where they worship, you know, and it's not the temple, but the synagogue is where they would, would, would regularly gather and, and, and discuss the faith and be built in the faith. And the ruler of the synagogue would be the one that was, was not only in charge of the teaching, but the enforcement of the law and all of these things that he, this was the, the guy that was in charge the Bible says that many of the rulers of the synagogue believed in Jesus, but were afraid to confess him. They were afraid to admit it because they were afraid they'd lose their job. In fact, it says that they were afraid they'd lose their place. That came from two directions. Number one, they had an uneasy alliance with the Romans. The Romans gave special exceptions to the Jews because when the Jews got mad, it was trouble for Rome. So they made a little exceptions, and they said, listen, we can play nice with you, you can play nice with us. And it was working, and they were always concerned that if someone would rise up that seemed to be claiming to be a king or a ruler, the Romans are going to be mad. But it also came from the other direction. Here's Jesus saying, your religion won't save you, your piety is not enough, no one is good but God Suddenly he was challenging not necessarily their interpretation of the Bible, but, but the way they lived it out, the heart of the whole thing. And he's, he's calling some of them snakes, and, and he's, he's challenging them on, on core issues, and they're being humbled when they don't want to be humbled. Jesus was the fall of many of those men, but he was the rise of many too. You think of the people that came and he had supper with them. Nobody wanted to have supper with these people. You think about the people that thought they were unworthy to be in his presence. You think about the people like the lepers that couldn't even enter into in any fellowship with anybody. They couldn't even live in the city. They couldn't live in community because they were unclean and they were isolated. You think about the woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for, for 12 years and couldn't be around people. You think about the poor. You think about the tax collectors. You think about the sinners who all of a sudden found grace, found redemption, found a place at the table and they rose so the gospel was good news it is good news you can't change the fact that it's good news right. see it's good news whether or not you accept it but whether or not it's good for you depends on how you receive it whether or not it is your fall or your rise depends on the classic thing that Jesus said and it's quoted many times in the New Testament God Opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The sword will pierce your own soul. There's nothing that's going to be hidden, but that's not necessarily bad. That's good. Because when we come to God and say nothing is hidden, and you know that he has shed his blood so that everything that's exposed, when you bring it to him and you say, God, I know this is wrong, I know this is, is wicked, I know it's perverse, but I bring it to you, and you said you'd remove it from me as far as the east is from the west, that we find in that place, we don't have to hide anything. We don't have to hide anything. I don't have to pretend. I can call it what it is. I don't have to call it a mistake. I can call it a sin because it no longer belongs to me. I'm not trying to justify. I, I'm, giving it, I'm, I'm giving it to the Savior. I'm leaving it at the cross. I'm accepting his gift. I wonder what the shepherds thought of that, though, you know? They certainly seemed to think it was good news. But I bet if that same announcement had come in Jerusalem, the, the, the reaction might have been different. We know that because when the Magi finally came, the wise men came, and they came to Jerusalem, and they said, we saw the star. Where is the king of the Jews going to be born? That the, the religious scholars got together and said, we know it's in Bethlehem. Yet not one of them said, let's go find this person. Let's go find this baby. They stayed in Jerusalem in their comfy palaces, in their comfy chairs. They didn't even go looking. The only guy that cared whether or not the king of the Jews was going to be born was the one guy who wanted to kill him, King Herod. Because even to King Herod, that little baby is a threat to his existence. I think about that angelic proclamation every time, every time I get up to preach 
the good news. I remember that it's good news, and it'll bring great joy. You know, I remember when Philip went to Samaria, and he began to preach the gospel. He wasn't even a preacher. I mean, the job he had in the church was to make sure that the tables were set, to make sure that people were being fed fairly. That was his job. But when persecution came and scattered everyone, he ended up in Samaria, and he did the only thing he knew to do, preach the gospel. And when he began to preach the gospel, the Bible says that this happened. Not only were people coming to Jesus, but demons were going out of people with a loud voice. People were being healed. And it says there was great joy in the city. (laughs) Because where the gospel is preached and it's received, there's great joy in that city. See, I've learned, and I hope you've learned this too, that Even though the gospel at some times is going to be greatly opposed, it's the only thing that can really bring joy. Even though it makes some angry, it's the only thing that's really going to bring joy. There's no uh, parade. There's no uh, festival. There's no carnival. There's nothing. No sports team finally winning the championship that's going to bring the joy that lasts in a city. But the gospel... And the question isn't whether or not the gospel is good. The question is, is it good news for you? And you think about, the angels don't just say, we got good news. It's going to be good news. Everybody thinks it's good news. They tell you, they describe why it's good news. Here's what they say. Here's why it's good news. For today in the city of David, there is born to you, for you, sorry. Isn't that amazing? He's born for you. A Savior. Who is Christ? And of course, he wouldn't have said Christ to them. He would have, in their language, it was Messiah. Who is Messiah? The one you've been waiting for. The Lord. These three words are good news to us. We hear them, we get excited, right? Savior, Christ, Lord. These are great, great words. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. But these are also very radical words. These are words that make people mad. You see, when I say you need a savior, that's a humbling thought. Because the very fact that I need a savior breaks my self-righteousness. It busts it. It it hits my pride. How many of you want to be helped across the street? Anybody? Anybody just want someone? Like, what if you're just walking across the street? Someone comes up and says, oh, you look like you need help. Here. Get off me. I don't need help. You know, I mean, what if, what if you're, you know, every time we're at Safeway and we just, we, we, I know they have to do it, it's their job and they're very nice people. We love those folks. But when we're getting those bags in the cart and they go, do you need a handout with that? I'm always a little insulted, like, no, I've got it, you know. I know they have to ask, but it's, I mean, come on, you know, like, no, I don't need help with this. I, I've got a cart I can push. I'm, I'm an able-bodied man, I guess, you know, I can do this. I guess. <laughs> I'm sure about that. No, I'm sure about that. I am able body. Do you need a hand with this? Who do you think I am? What do you think's wrong with me? Why would you ask that? So to be someone, when you think you're doing real good, listen, Jesus came to a nation that was full of a lot of people, not everybody, but there were a lot of people in high places that thought they were doing pretty good and God was pretty lucky to have them. Jesus told the story of the one guy that prayed. His prayer was, thank God I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Can you imagine how high up on your horse you have to be to be like, that's your prayer. In fact, what's interesting is the, Jesus, when Jesus tells the story, he said, and this man was over there praying to himself. He makes the point that his prayer is not even hitting the ceiling. God's not hearing that prayer. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Like, oh, man, God, you are so lucky to have me. You're so blessed to have me. What did you do to deserve a guy like me? <laughs> the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've kept every law. Yeah, right. No, you haven't. In fact, Jesus didn't challenge him on that. But who in the world keeps, has, could keep every law? And Jesus says to him, sure, sure, sure. But one thing you lack. <laughs> He doesn't even challenge him on that. 
All right, let's just assume you're right. You still are lacking one thing. Can you imagine the anger, the sadness, the, like, what do you mean I'm lacking one thing? I've done everything, and I'm still lacking something. And Jesus said, if you give all that stuff away, give it to the poor and come follow me. The Bible says the man got back on his donkey and left and went away sad. Jesus just gave him the good news. You see, Jesus said, follow me, which throughout the Gospels was pretty special if Jesus said it just to you. In fact, the only time we see him use that phrase in the Gospels is generally reserved for those that were to be his disciples, later apostles of the church. What an invitation. Follow me. Can you imagine if the person you'd most want to meet in the world right now came and said, hey, come on tour with me. Come with me. Why don't, why don't, you, get, why don't you jump in my van? You can, you can follow me. You can be around me. What an honor. Now imagine it's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God. It says, follow me. And you can't sell some land to do that. You can't give some stuff away to do that. That's how much that's worth to you. So Jesus exposed his self-righteousness. And he exposed it over and over again, not because he was angry, not because he was mean, but because he's trying to save their lives. Paul said something in Romans 10 that you need to remember. He said, my prayer is for my brothers. And who's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about the nation of Israel, but he, I believe in his own heart, he's thinking about the guys he went to school with. You see, Paul was one of the most educated Pharisees in his, in his generation. He was, he was taught, he was mentored, especially mentored by one of the greatest teachers that they had known for, for decades, or maybe even more than that, in a century. G Gamaliel was, was well-respected. We still hear about some of his teachings today. Yeah. And Saul was a personal student of this guy. He came up with the, the cream of the crop. In fact, in one place he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, I was at the top. I was a shooting star. I was the guy. And he says... But my prayers for my brothers, these guys that came up with me, he said, my prayers for their salvation. You think about how many people Paul led to the Lord, but he's still thinking about his, his friends from college. He's still thinking about his colleagues. He's thinking about these guys that he knows love God. But he said, my prayers for their salvation because their problem is, is that in seeking to establish their own righteousness, and seeking to be good on their own. They've neglected and failed to submit themselves to the free gift of righteousness of God, which is by faith. You see what he's saying? They're missing everything. I just pray because they've spent all their time investing in self-righteousness, they haven't received the gift of righteousness. To them, the good news isn't good at all. When he says that for us is born a savior, that's good news to people that know they need a savior. But it's infuriating to those that think they're doing all right. Then he says, Savior, who is the Messiah. That's wonderful. I mean, we've been waiting for this. When he calls him the Messiah, he was reminding them that this is the promise you've been waiting for. I've been talking for centuries about it. This is him. He's going to rescue Israel, but why would Messiah be offensive? Why would they be offended by that? Do you know how many people were offended when little kids in Jerusalem said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. See, the son of David was something you only called the Messiah. That's, that's a phrase that everybody knew what it meant. That guy's the Messiah. And the moment people started saying that, specifically the kids who didn't know any better and were just bold enough to say it right, on, right in, in the middle of Jerusalem, the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, tell them to shut up. This was very offensive to them. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus had been dead. All, he was on the four days of being dead. Jesus raised him from the grave. And the Bible says that after that, they became so angry that they dis determined not to rest until Jesus was dead, and now they were going to kill Lazarus too. Why were they so angry? Because 
Raising Lazarus from the dead was widely recognized as one of the final signs of the Messiah. Raising a man who'd been dead for more than three days. See, the more Jesus proved he was the Messiah, the more they were mad. Because he didn't fit their version of what the Messiah looked like. Let me put this in your words. The more you study something, studying is good. Getting to know something is good. But the more expectations you have, if your expectations aren't built on what God's saying, if they're built on what you've constructed, and your, if your expectations don't match up with God's reality, you'll, be either, you'll either be humbled or you'll be too proud. You'll be angered by what actually happens. When you have such... Um, when you've invested so much in your structure of who you think God's supposed to be and how it's supposed to pan out, and if it doesn't pan out exactly like the way you've imagined it to, it's a harsh reality. They had imagined the Messiah would come and kick the Romans out. They, they imagined the Messiah would come and say, good job, boys. You held down the fort for me. You're going to be my lieutenants. You're going to be at the top of the chain, but he didn't. He flipped everything upside down. He told them that they had missed the point. And so this isn't the Messiah we want. He's talking about an invisible kingdom. He's talking about a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. He's talking about a kingdom that doesn't match our version of what a kingdom should be. So the good news, he's the promise that you've been waiting for. is bad news to some. Then he says he's the Messiah, the Lord. You see, that word for Lord is a word that means the one that goes in front, the one that leads us, the one we follow. That's the word that's used here that the angel used. Somebody that goes ahead of us, we follow this one. He's at the forefront. That's the word we translated here as Lord. It's hard for leaders to follow. I could tell you that. It's hard for leaders to follow because you're used to leading. And when Jesus came and said, follow me, that's a humbling thought. Here's the question. How did God decide? How did God decide who was going to rise and who was going to fall? Just ask yourself that question for a minute. How did God, if Jesus was going to be the rise and the fall of many, how did God decide who was going to rise and who was going to fall? But the answer, it's a bit of a trick. God didn't decide that. He knew that, but he didn't decide that. We decide that. I decide whether I'm going to rise or fall with him. I decide whether or not I'm going to accept the free gift. I decide whether or not I'm going to say he's my Lord. I decide whether or not I'm going to receive salvation that he offered. The Bible says he paid the price for the whole world. But whether or not you're saved is not... It's not his will against your will. The Bible says it's his will that none would perish, but that all would be saved. God is not trying to keep heaven this exclusive club. The Bible says, Jesus said, compel. He told a parable where the king said, compel those that are in the ditches and the highways and the byways. Compel them to come to my house because my house must be full. God wants a full house. He's not looking for an excuse to throw you in hell. He did everything to save you from hell. Yes. Someone says, well, God must just not like me. God, God must always been opposed to me. The Bible says he opposes the proud. It's pride that keeps us from grace. It's pride that keeps us from what God has for us. It's pride that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. And it's not worth it. When we lay it down... The good news is good. To us, it's the power of God. It's, it's foolishness to them that believe not, but to us that are being saved, it is the power of God that leads to salvation. This is good news, and you should never forget that, and you should never be ashamed of it just because someone thought it was bad. Because a lot of people thought it was bad when Jesus said it, but it didn't change the fact that it was good. It didn't change the fact that he was the Savior. Can you understand that? That opposition doesn't change who you are. Opposition didn't change who Jesus was. You know, he wasn't a demon to some and a savior to others. He was the savior to everyone. Whether or not they believed it, that was up to them. Whether or not they were saved, that was up to them. 
I'll tell you tonight, when you go out and you share what God has done for you, it seems so automatic that people would love that. Why would you be mad at that? But Peter says, Peter said, your old friends that you used to run in excess with, the old friends that you used to get hammered with, the old friends that you used to do stuff you shouldn't do with, he said, some of them are going to hate you for the change in your life. That doesn't seem fair. You guys should be happy for me. Look what happened to me. Look, what I, look, remember my life was spiraling out of control, and they're like, well, yeah, but at least we were spiraling together. Sometimes I've seen people do this. I've seen people so excited about the good news that changed their life, and they go and they tell someone, and, and people are like, yeah, good for you, and yeah, I'm excited, and they have that first person that just hits them with, how dare you? Don't you know that there are many ways? Or don't you know that that's arrogant of you to say you know how to get to heaven? Or blah, 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 whatever it is. And they come back and go, did I do it wrong? Did I say something bad? And then sometimes they'll come and they'll be like, Pastor, did, maybe you can tell me how to share the gospel because I'm obviously doing something wrong because these people got mad and, and maybe you are doing something wrong. I've done something wrong. But it's not necessarily, in fact, most of the time that's not the case. Most of the time, it's not a matter of the good news not being good. It's a matter of the fact that if the only way it's going to be good is if you're okay with what makes it good. If what makes the good news good is you need a Savior. In order for that to be good news, you have to understand, I'm not good enough. In order for me to rejoice in the fact that I'm going to heaven, I have to know there's a hell. There's a whole lot of people in the world that aren't comfortable with you saying that. Right? Hell? No. We don't want to talk about that. Yeah. I didn't. Watch, watch the sound guys are going to splice that fast together so, so that hell and no aren't separated by a space. They <laughs> don't want us to talk about that, well, but that's what makes the good news so good. I mean, that's one of the things that makes the good news so I was dying and now I'm alive. Right. Like, what is the resurrection without the death? Thank God I've been saved from death. So the Savior is only good news if you think you need a Savior. So one of the first things in order to believe the good news is the realization. I'm not good enough on my own. Nobody is. The Messiah. That's good news. The angel said this is good news. He's the Messiah. But why is that good news? It's good news if you believe that, yes, God keeps his promises and Jesus is proof. Yes, God, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the fulfillment of everything God has spoken. But what if he doesn't match your expectations of what God said? You have to be willing to lay your expectations at the foot of the creator and say, Lord, I can't paint as good as you can paint. I can't imagine as good as you can dream. I can't, I can't build as good as you can build. So Lord, instead of me telling you what I need you to be, why don't you tell me who you are? Yeah. And that's good news for me. Yeah. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. And in a culture where we are so obsessed with independence, I don't need anybody but me. In a culture where you're told that the happiest you'll ever be is doing what you want to do, pursuing your truth, finding your personal happiness. When you come face to face with the God who made you and he says, child, you'll never find it that way. You go, do I believe you or not? Listen, look at the proof though. Think about the people in our culture who got everything they were chasing. They're no happier than you. In fact, many times they're much worse off. Because when you're still chasing it and you haven't got it yet, there's still the faint hope that when you get there, the pot of gold is going to be at the end of the rainbow. When you actually get there and you find out that it does nothing for you, it's like hitting a brick wall at 60 miles per hour. Why do rock stars take their life at 27? Why do movie stars have to be so on so many pills and all these other things? Why do celebrity marriages never seem to last? I'm sure there's a lot of stress with their job, but I'm sure a lot of it is, listen, when you chase your dreams and you finally get them and you realize they're empty, that's a hard pill to swallow. 
So if your culture's been telling you the only way to be happy is to do your thing, and yet everybody who's done that is not happy, maybe you should take a cue that they're wrong. Maybe you should find out that the Bible says the one who is anointed with gladness above everybody else on the planet was Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only guy who said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I don't do anything that I decide. I do only what the Father tells me to do. The happiest guy to ever walk the planet, the most joyful, full of gladness, anointed with the oil of gladness, a spirit of gladness, is the one guy who says, independence, no way. I need the Father, and I do what he tells me to do, and that's where I find my joy, and that's where you'll find your joy, he says, if you'll abide in me, live in me, and and I'm in the Father, and and the Father's in me, and you're in me, and you're in the Father. This is where joy is found, and you'll bear fruit, and your joy won't be partial. It won't be weighted. It won't be double-sided. It will be full, full joy. Some people call us full gospel. I want to also steal the name full joy. That's what we preach. Because full joy doesn't have a downside. There's no guilt attached to it. There's no shame attached to it. There's no, I had to take for someone else, I had to take from someone to build myself up. It's just pure joy. And the only way to get it is to follow the example of the one who had it the most. The gospel is good news for everybody. It brings great joy to all who receive it. And it is for all people. The only way it will ever be good news, which brings great joy, is if you receive it. And he defines it here. Here's the good news. He's a savior. He's the Messiah. And he's the Lord. find a lot of people looking for peace in this season. They recall what the angel said, peace on earth, goodwill. They forget the last part, towards men with whom he is pleased. Or maybe they remember it and they're troubled by it and don't know, well, who's God pleased with? The Bible says that when they asked him, Jesus, what what work do we need to do? Show us what work we need to do to, to be pleasing. Jesus said, here's the work that's demanded of you. Believe. Believe in the one whom he sent. That's the work he wants from you. Do you believe? Do you put your hope in me? When people are looking for peace so badly, your heart goes out for them because they're not finding it. And we've all been in that place where we weren't finding it either. And You read about what the scripture says about peace. It's more than just a serenity or a lack of strife. It's, it's wholeness. It's rightness. It's nothing missing, nothing broken. The idea of shalom is so big. And yet, in Isaiah 9, when it talks about Him, Jesus, it says he's going to be called the Prince of Peace. Prince is not the, like we watch too many Disney movies. We think Prince is the son of the king. But the word Prince means the ruler, the chief, the boss. You see, peace is attached to him ruling. It says of his government and of his peace, of the, sorry, of the increase of his government, And of his peace, there will be no end. Where his government, the the word for government means dominion or rulership. Where his will is being done, peace increases. His government, the Bible says that as long as we're on the earth, from the moment that Jesus came to the moment that he comes back, and, and even after that, his government will just keep increasing. And as his government, his rule increases, so will peace increase. Do you understand that your peace is tied to his rulership? Your peace is tied to his lordship. I've said this before, but that's why Psalm 23 makes so much sense. That's why the valley of the shadow of death doesn't distress me, because you're with me, and then your rod and your staff, your, your staff that keeps me on your path, not my path. Your staff tells me where to go. They comfort me. You know how many people are looking for comfort from their depression, from their anxiety? And we think that comfort's found in all these things. We even think maybe comfort is just somebody telling you nice things about, you know, uh, maybe even just, just, just something encouraging. And while that can be good, I'll tell you where ultimate comfort comes from. The Lordship of Jesus. The shepherd. 
He's a great comforter. You'll be comforted by his order and his leadership in your life. And he'll lead you to still waters. And he'll make you lie down in quiet pastures. You realize he's the one doing it. We're looking for peace, but you can't find peace without a Lord. I want to tell you something. That's the good news. And it'll bring great joy, and it's for everybody. There's nobody this isn't for. There's nobody that God says, I don't want you in the family. There's nobody that's going to get kicked out at the door who comes with an honest heart and says, I need you. Isn't that good news? That's good news. So guys, receive it as good news every day. You know, we just think the only time you got to receive the gospel is when you first get saved. Thank God for that. But why don't you receive the gospel every day? Why don't, you, why don't you think about it every day and realize that he's always your savior? The Bible says he ever lives to save. That means you, the, old, you, the, the, you, the getting born again and, 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 and having your sins washed away wasn't the only salvation you'll experience by his hand. He ever lives to save. He is your savior. He's your Messiah. He's your answer to every question. He's your answer to the promise God gave you. He is the yes and the amen. He is who God said he is. And he's Lord. He's Lord whether or not you think he is. He's Lord whether or not you call him Lord. He's Lord whether or not you follow him. But I'll tell you, the the way to peace is to say, you're my Lord. Wonderful. And when he accepts you into his family, he doesn't treat you like a boss and an employee. Even though we call him Lord, he calls us sons and daughters. And we get to call the Father, Father. What a beautiful thing. So is the gospel always good news? Yes. You can't change. It's always good news. Will it be received as good news? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, when Peter and John, that man got healed at the gate, and it's the last story I promise, and we'll, we'll, we'll close. But it is the last Wednesday, so, you know, we've got to squeeze the juice out of it. When Peter and John healed that man at the gate called Beautiful, he'd been lame all his life, never been able to walk, and he was walking and leaping and praising God. They gave a defense, and they explained why they were able to do this, and, and some, they were threatened, but they were released. And then miracles kept happening in Jerusalem. So much so that the Bible says that even when Peter's shadow, they said sick people, they would line sick people up in the streets just so when Peter walked by, even if his shadow passed over, someone would be healed. Like that was, listen, his shadow wasn't a magic shadow. It's not a Peter Pan shadow (laughs) that had healing anointing. It was just just being in the presence of someone who's full of the glory of God. And, and believe me, Peter didn't have anything you don't have access to. That's right. That's right. He had the same spirit you have, right? Yeah. Peter's walking down. People are being healed. So they round up the apostles and they throw them in prison. An angel comes and lets them out. And they go right back to where they were arrested. They go right in public and began to preach the gospel. Because the angel, when he lets them out, he doesn't just let them out and say, now you're free, go hide. He says, go and proclaim the whole message of this life. So they go. Listen to that, the whole message of this life. They go and start preaching. And the the people that put them in prison are furious. they, They bring them back on trial. It's like, they don't even acknowledge what a miracle just happened. They're just mad at them for doing it again, you know? I don't know how you got out, but I'm mad. And they said, they threatened them and said, you better not ever do this again. And the apostles said, do you think we should listen to God or listen to you? Like, what do you think? And they said, the, 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 the religious leader said, you keep trying to put this man's blood on our hands. And they said, listen, you got to decide. Is it right for us to listen to you or right for you to listen to God? But we're going to preach this gospel. Right. You see, the good news they were preaching was saving people. It was healing people. It was delivering people. How could you call that a bad thing? How could you possibly see that as a public health hazard when people are being healed in the streets? It's like the opposite of a public health hazard, whatever that is. It's a public healing hazard. 
which I guess would be the same as hell has it ran anyways. Whatever it is, it's the opposite of a problem. It seems to be the answer. Unless every time they preach, we killed Jesus, but he rose from the dead. Now he's forgiving all of us. They can't get over. You're accusing us of something, and we're good, and we're right. You're calling us bad. You keep trying to put this man's blood on our hands. Yeah. You know, Jesus' blood was on my hands. Jesus' blood was on your hands. We all had his blood on our hands. The Bible said he was bruised for us. He was pierced for us. He was crushed for us. That's why it's so stupid when someone says, well, the Jews killed, Christians, killed Jesus. We all killed Jesus. And he forgave us all. And that's the answer. He forgave us all. And these leaders said, his blood's on our hands. And yeah, that's a problem if you think you're righteous. But when you realize we need his righteousness, it's the power of God. And I want to challenge you today to never be ashamed of good news. You get to speak every day. You get to say the things that an army of angels said that day. You are entrusted with that. You know what you have that the angels don't have? You have the power to watch someone cross from death to life. They never got that. They never got to see that. Mm -hmm. They never got to be that instrument that brought someone from death to life. You do. You get to be there when that happens. Isn't that amazing? You've been entrusted with something they only wish they could be trusted with. You have been entrusted with it. Never see it as anything but good news that brings great joy, and it's for everybody. Don't let anyone tell you it's only for a certain group of people. It's for everybody. I've preached all over the world, and the gospel is the gospel is the gospel, and it always does what God said it would do. And he always heals, and he always delivers, and he always saves, and he never breaks his word. And I'll tell you, it's always received with joy by those who know they need it. And it'll always be opposed by the proud. But thank God, thank God, even the proud can be saved. Amen. Amen. And I'm proof of that, and you're proof of that. So let's be joyful in the bringing of the gospel. Let's not be ashamed even when it's opposed, even when your workplace suddenly makes it hostile or, 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 or some, you know, you heard something on the news, you saw something on social media that, that makes you feel like maybe you're pushing your belief on someone or you're stepping on someone's toes. Listen, this isn't, this isn't an opinion. This is good news. This is salvation. I'm not trying to grow a church. I'm trying to, to bring people back to life. I'm trying to proclaim something good. Yeah. Amen. Thank God I don't have, it's not my trying that gets anything done. Yeah. It's his work. Yeah. And we get to be a part of it. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Stand up with me.